Thanks for joining us for Life Community Church. And then we've had the the heartache and uh, just the experience of watching Texas unravel, right, as another mass school shooting happens. Um, and that was kind of, like for me, back in 1999 when Columbine happened was a huge shift for me just in asking questions about my faith, asking God, what what is happening in school, right? So um, school students have always kind of had a, a just it's been part of my faith journey and to see like we're still doing it how many years later and this it's uh there sometimes there aren't there aren't words um to think about the the trauma and the tragedy that people are facing through that and to imagine um you just don't know when something when something traumatic is going to happen right so there's just this unimaginable pain in the midst of also celebration, and there's that dissonance of going back and forth between these kind of life experiences. Um, so th there's this, uh, this great book. Um, it's called Every Moment Holy. There's, it's liturgy, and there's a volume one and volume two, and I'm just going to read a prayer um, from that um, that that addresses the pain of school shootings. So if you would pray it with me as I read these words, and um, we'll, we'll just start that way. O spirit who enters our grief, intercede now for this hurting people in this broken land. Move our hearts to compassion, O Lord, that we would interact with these casualties not as news stories or statistics, but as our own sisters and brothers, flesh and blood, divine image bearers, irreplaceable individuals whose losses will leave gaping holes in homes, friendships, workplaces, churches, schools, organizations, and neighborhoods. Amen. So let us just keep them in our interceding prayers, I would say. You know, we're in this um, series on, on faith and, and doubt, and um, back when Columbine happened, there was one of the victims, um, Rachel, and she wrote this, well, her family members wrote this book about her life, um, and I was flipping through it in my office just uh, kind of remembering and how much that shaped my faith. I was in, I think, sixth grade at the time. And, um, you know, she, it shows all her journal entries, and she was kind of this prophetic person, but also, like, wrestled with God a lot and had faith and, and doubt, and she would write about it in her journals, like, God, where are you? Why can't I feel you? And she would just go on and on, very authentic in her journals and her prayers to God. Um, but then she also like had a sense that her life was going to be short. She even wrote in her journal like she was only going to have one year left in life. And that was like right within an 11-month period of, of that shooting in Columbine. And um, even that morning, she like had drew a picture of a rose with 13 um, teardrops and there was 13 victims that morning. And 
So there was just so much in this um, young person's like journals that her parents didn't even know until they started digging through it and, and how much she wrestled with God in her journals. And that set me on a trajectory um, as a sixth grader to start wrestling with God in my own journals and in my own prayer time. And that really shaped a lot of how I... Um, just kind of lived out my faith as I was navigating it uh, as, a, as a young Liz, you know, going through school. Um, and, and so that was really formational. So I'm always kind of like brought back, like there's so much grief and yet there's like this foundation for me in, in kind of that turning of like recognizing the evil that exists in, in our world and how do we wrestle with that. So we're in this series on faith and doubt, and Philip Yancey, he's a, he's a Christian author, he says this about doubt. He says, doubt is the skeleton in the closet of faith, and I know no better way to treat a skeleton than to bring it into the open and expose it for what it is. Not something to hide or fear, but a hard structure on which living tissue may grow. So how do you find yourself dealing with doubt when questions come into your mind, when you feel that dissonance um, with what's happening, and then, okay, God, what, you know? Do you acknowledge it? Do you say it out loud? Do you pray about it? Do you, do you journal about it? Do you talk about it with someone? Or do you just like, okay, let's just shove it, open up the closet, shove it back in there, close the door, let's just hope it's going to kind of resolve itself on its own. But what do you do? One of the things I think that intersects faith and doubt is often the Bible for us, right? We can, we can wrestle with the Bible. We can come across um, uncomfortable passages or confusing things. We don't always know what to do with it. When I say the Bible is dot, 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 what do you think of in your mind when I say the Bible is? You might think, well, the Bible is the word of God. You've heard that, right? Um, or the Bible is an ancient text. It's the Torah, the first five books of the Bible. It's the Gospels. It's the Holy Scriptures. There's the New Testament. The Bible is the Old Testament. It's the writings of the prophets and apostles. And one word I would like to add to this description is the Bible is a library. The Bible is actually a library of books. And it's emerged out of the, the ancient history of Israel and over the course of about a thousand years, God used different prophets to write down the stories of ancient Israel. And it isn't just any story about any people, but it's the story of the God of the universe interacting with humanity and then humanity's response to God. And, and in these books, and in these stories, we, we see the questions of life emerge. We see people's experiences that are similar to us, the struggles, the pain, the joy. We, we, we read um, revelation and wisdom and poetry 
Maybe you've heard that the Bible is a manual for life. Have you ever heard that, that phrase, you know, it's a manual for life? But I don't really think that that's an accurate way to describe the Bible. You know, when you think of a manual, you know, you get manuals for all kinds of stuff. I often pitch them. I'll figure it out on my own, right? That's my mentality. Um, until you really need it, right? Uh, but, you know, the car manual. The car manual is one you hang on to, right? That's a little bit more important than, like, um, your mixer manual or the new Bluetooth speaker you got, you know? So the car manual, it always kind of sits in your glove compartment. You probably never really pay attention to it that often until you need it, right? So this last week, I had a, a light go on on my dashboard. And if that happens to you and you don't know what it is, you use your car manual very transactionally, right? You look in the index and you look for what you're looking for, and mine would be system indicators. That's those lights, right? And so system in indicators is on page 88. And so you flip over to page 88, and you scan the different icons and the definitions. And I could see, oh, yeah, that icon means I have low tire pressure because the weather went wonky this past week, right? It was like 60 and raining. Um, and so, you know, I needed to fill up the air in my tires. So you go to the nearest gas station. Actually, we like Costco. They have a great, you know, kind of plug and boop. You know, the tires all filled up and you're ready to go. It actually makes that noise. No, I'm just kidding. Um, and, you know, problem solved. Your tires filled up. You're ready to go. You're done with the manual. You put it back in the glove compartment. You reference it, you know. Uh, a year from now when you have another problem. But the Bible doesn't work transactionally like that, you know? Um, let's say I was feeling particularly angry today, you know? I don't, you know, just open up to page uh, 1250 and look up anger. Oh, there's a description of my anger. Um, oh, it tells me exactly what to do to mitigate my anger problem. And oh, if I just do A, B, C, oh, I solved my anger problem for today. I'm good to go. I'm going to put the manual back on the shelf and I'll reference it the next time I have an emotional problem. Um, th that's, that's not how it works. <laughs> I mean, if it did, I, you know, what, what, what could we accomplish with that? But the Bible is this mysterious, complex library of, of stories. What, what it does show us about anger, it, it shows us, okay, we were created as God's children. We can see where anger started, the problem of how anger entered into the world and how it now has become our story. We can read about um, how other people in Scripture got angry what they did with their anger, how it turned out for them. Um, we can also read about uh, someone like David who uh, penned the Psalms, the poetry of the Psalms, and how he channeled his anger into laments, into these poems, and how he was very raw and honest about his own anger to God. Um, 
you know, we can glean wisdom about anger. We can see even how Jesus used anger towards, um, to enact justice to the right worship of God in the temple. We can understand God's design for our hearts to not be um, constrained by anger, but to be free in his love and in his rest. So we can understand those things from reading this library, but it's not a manual that gives us absolutely clear answers to absolutely every problem that we encounter in life. If we take the Bible and think it's going to work for us like a manual, then uh, we're going to be really let down by Scripture. God is mysterious at times. We have awe and wonder built into our faith, into our relationship with God. You know, if you were to go to an art museum, right? You go to an art museum, you don't like speed walk around the art museum, right? Like how fast can we make it through this art museum? Quick, quick, we got to see everything and just move on out to the next thing. If you go to an art museum, you're strolling leisurely through that art museum. You're taking a look at each painting. You stand in front of it for a long time. You admire the artist's light and shadows and lines and color. You notice the details, right? You try to take in the emotion and the movement of the picture. You ponder it. You meditate on it. You try to think, you know, what is the artist trying to convey in this painting? You sit with that piece of art. And when we look at the Bible as a library, we realize, oh, there's, there's lots of different books in this library that have different literary styles, and they're trying to convey something in different ways. Often, even in each book, there's multiple literary styles kind of going together. Most of the Bible is narrative, which is story. It tells a story. Now, there's one overarching story of God's redemption and his plan. And in between that overarching story are all these little stories weaved in and out throughout Scripture. And then the next largest section of Scripture is actually poetry. And poetry is, is meant to evoke meaning and emotion as we read it, right? There's imagery and metaphor, and, we're, and we read it differently. And then the last section is um, prose discourse, which kind of is a, uh, an umbrella for, our, for all the, the speeches and the letters and the essays and the ways in which the authors take a, an idea and they kind of build it together to this claim or argument. And they lay it out for you with you as the reader um, supposed to respond to that. And so there's these different books and there's these different genres as we read scripture. And it's all intended to shape and transform us. 
So when we are walking through our journey of faith and doubt and, and the Bible is intersecting that, we have to wrestle with this library. We have to read it maybe in new ways that isn't the manual way of trying to read the Bible. You know, central in um, Jewish faith is the Torah scroll. Now the Torah is that first five books of the Bible in the Old Testament. So it's the book of Genesis and Exodus and Leviticus, Numbers and Deuteronomy. And the Torah is made up of those five books and they make this scroll to handwrite all those books of the Bible on this big scroll. And it's made with, I mean, the process is, you, you can't even comprehend the process. So much care and precision goes into making this very, very, very sacred scroll. And it's made out of parchment paper, which is actually not the kind of paper you bake cookies on. So don't think that. We're not thinking of like you buy it at Costco, you roll it out, you write your little Torah scripture on it. No. The, the parchment paper that they use is made out of animal um, skin. Okay, and so they cure this animal skin and they go through this huge long process to create the actual paper that's made from the kosher animal skin. And once all that paper is made, it is weaved together by threads made from um, the fibrous uh, tissues of an animal that connect the muscle to the bone, okay? And so all these pieces of parchment paper threaded together, um, make up the Torah scroll before even the Torah is uh, scribed on there. But this weaving of that um, fibrous tissue reminds Jewish readers that there's this story from one of their ancestors, Jacob, who um, is symbolized in that threading of the fibrous tissue. So listen to this from um, Genesis 32, 24 through 32. So this is just a snippet about Jacob's life. But Jacob stayed behind by himself, and a man wrestled with him until daybreak. When the man saw that he couldn't get the best of Jacob as they wrestled, he deliberately threw Jacob's hip out of joint. And the man said, let me go, it's daybreak. And Jacob said, I'm not letting you go until you bless me. And the man said, what's your name? He answered, Jacob. The man said, but no longer. Your name is no longer Jacob. From now on, it's Israel, meaning God wrestler. You've wrestled with God and you've come through. Jacob asked, and what's your name? And the man said, why do you want to know my name? And then, right then and there, he blessed him. Jacob named the place Peniel, God's face, because he said, I saw God face to face and lived to tell the story. The sun came up as he left Peniel limping because of his hip. This is why the Israelites to this day don't eat the hip muscle because Jacob's hip was thrown out of joint. So this is a little bit of a strange story, right, to say the least. Jacob you know, he's a flawed man. You can read about his earlier stories in scripture. He's, he's you know, not perfect. So I, I think it's kind of audacious to wrestle with God and say, bless me. I'm not going to leave until you bless me. 
but it's God's purpose to bless him. He rewards his persistence and he blesses him. And not only does he bless him, but he gives him a new name and a, a new identity. He renames him Israel. And then Israel is the one who fathers the children who become the tribes of Israel. So when we talk about the Israelites, this is the origin of what we're talking about. And, and Jacob, this is actually his second encounter with God. He has a, a vision and a dream earlier, a few chapters earlier. And I think it's, it's fascinating, you know, despite his flaws, God promises his blessing. He's going to accomplish his purposes of blessing the earth and the lineage of Jacob through him. But I think that this passage, you know, it makes you wonder, it makes you question when you, when you look at it like a painting and you, and you stop and you ponder. I think it brings up a question of, you know, what is Jacob walk, what's the sign that Jacob walks away with that he's been blessed by this encounter with the living God? What's the evidence of this blessing, this encounter? Okay, well, it isn't a bigger tent, you know? Didn't, God didn't just bless him with a bigger tent, <laughs> you know, go out and buy that big tent. You know, you've been living in this shabby one, Jacob, but I'm going to bless you with the best one. Go down to that merchant, you know? Um, he doesn't just give him carefree living, more wealth. That's often the signs that we look for, right? Oh, someone's blessed if they have a really big house and everything's going well from, for them and they don't have problems, right? They, just, they have everything that looks good from the outside. Um, but... Pastor Jeremy Berg, he says, the telltale sign that someone has brushed up against God's awesome presence is often this. They walk with a spiritual limp. They have scars from all-night shouting matches with God. They have arm-wrestled with God in the silence of God's apparent absence. They have grabbed onto God and refused to let go, even when God's presence sometimes seems to bring more pain than comfort. They know that contrary to popular belief, Jesus was right on when he said, blessed are those who mourn. These are the ones who will be comforted. I think there's so much for us to wrestle with God about. There's so much that comes up for us in life. Things that happen in the world, like we saw this week, and that just that seems like the trajectory of what just keeps happening and happening and happening. There's so much coming at us. We can't keep up sometimes. We have to wrestle those things out with God. There's things that happen in our family. There's things that happen as we read scripture. The questions and doubts live everywhere. They are in every corner of my mind when I wake up and I and I think this, and I think that, and I'm like, God, why? Why this? Why that? Why is it like this? Why do I have to go through that? Why was it like this? Why is this happening? Why aren't you doing this? And as the Jewish people weave that, um, 
that parchment paper together, they're reminded of that limp that Jacob received after he wrestled with God. Every time we encounter God and we read scripture, we have to, we have to wrestle these things out with him. We have to grapple and struggle and fight for the things in our faith. I mean, we do this in our earthly relationships. Connection doesn't just come easily and simply, right? And you're, if you're in a family, man, you struggle and fight for those connections and those relationships, right? And it's the same with our faith. We've been kind of working through um, this book called Stay Curious by Stephanie O'Brien. And, and she relates the stories of Scripture to it, a tapestry, right? That the Bible is like a tapestry of, of this community of people that are being led by God and all these interweaving stories and poems and genealogies. And if, if you're struggling with one thread, pulling on one thread doesn't unweave the whole thing. It doesn't destroy the whole tapestry, right? There's actually uh, certain threads that are like structure threads that keep the whole thing very, very sturdy. But as we look at one thread and another thread and another thread, and we pull back and we look at all these stories and, and we see them all put together, we see that big picture of God, the beautiful tapestry and story of redemption that he is weaving throughout this library. Now, you know, this library isn't complete yet, okay? <laughs> you know, it started in the beginning with creation. Then there was the crisis, the fall, and then there's the messy middle. Oh, most of the Bible, the messy middle, the library. Now, there is a book at the very end called Revelation, and that gives us a, a vision of the future that all wrongs are going to be made right. The world is going to be fully redeemed. But we're still in the messy middle. And we have to cling to what we know about Jesus. And he's given us power through his life and his death and his resurrection. And we weave in this tapestry our own stories of brokenness and pain, of struggle and joy, of hope. And Jesus knew, he knew that this whole section of messy middle was going to be hard. He knew it was going to be hard. I mean, even his disciples who he spent, you know, almost night and day with for three years, still walked away with, faith, with doubt, right? They still wrestled with, what did he say? What did he mean? They had to wrestle it out. But what Jesus promises um, before his death, in, in John um, actually 14 through 16, you can, in your Bible, it's mostly read, Okay, because there, that means Jesus was talking all those times, right? And before he goes to the cross, he's like, I'm just going to download them with as much as I can give them before I'm about to leave, right? And he knows, oh, the messy middle, it's going to be hard. And so he reminds us that we get to be a part of this Trinitarian dance. We get to be brought into the relationship of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit as our home. 
And we see it in John 14, 15. Let me read it to you. If you love me, obey my commandments. And I will ask the Father, and he will give you another advocate who will never leave you. He is the Holy Spirit who leads into all truth. The world cannot receive him because it isn't looking for him and doesn't recognize him. But you know him because he lives with you now, and later he will be in you. Now I will not abandon you as orphans. I will come to you. Soon the world will no longer see me, but you will see me. Since I live, you also will live. When I am raised to life again, you will know that I am in my Father, and you are in me, and I am in you. Those who accept my commands and obey them are the ones who love me. And because they love me, my Father will love them, and I will love them and reveal myself to each of them. The Trinity is in this little passage. So this is what I want to leave you with, um, is, is just seeing that the divine life, the divine presence is in us, those who follow Jesus. Verse 15, if you missed it, the Holy Spirit is right there. It says, he will give you another advocate who will never leave you. The advocate, he's talking about the Holy Spirit. Verse 20 says that you will know that I am in my Father and I and you are in me and I am in you. That's Jesus. So he's talking about Jesus. Well, Jesus is talking about himself there. And then at the very end, it says that the Father is going to come and love them and he will make his home. And he says, we, we will make our home with them. The home is this we're in this home of Trinitarian dance where the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit, there's this flow, infinite flow of love between them and us. And that is our, that is our inheritance, that's our spiritual home when we are walking through faith and doubt and anything that this life throws at us. That's our place of grounding as we wrestle with Scripture as we seek to be transformed and grow. So here's my three um, call to actions. I want you to experiment with scripture in a different way than you're used to. I don't know exactly how you normally interact with scripture, well, you know, what kind of, um, or if it's been sitting, you know, like in the glove compartment for a while and you have to kind of dust it off and uh, open it up again. But there's, there's three uh, kind of experiments I'm going to give to you. One um, is the Bible Project, okay? The Bible Project has an amazing way of organizing this library and helping us kind of see those movements and those uh, themes and those links that we don't necessarily always, you know, just see so plainly when we just, oh, open up to Isaiah, you know? And so they have an app, which is really great. You can also do it, you know, just on their website. Um, but the, Bri the Bible Project app is really great. It gives you easy ways to kind of follow a, a reading journey and see things organized uh, in a different way than you might normally have read Scripture. So... Go on, get the Bible app, you know, at your, your Play Store, Apple Store. You know, since Apple, Apple 
you know, that's all the rage. I'm the only one that has a Samsung. <sighs> Anyways, I'm old and out of touch. <laughs> um, but the second way, I've mentioned this app before, but it's uh, Lectio 365. And this is like a meditative way of interacting with scripture. They usually have some kind of theme that they're doing for a couple weeks, like listening to God or um, something like that. And they have like a, a morning thing and an evening thing, and they're no more than 10 minutes. And you can read it or you can have it say it to you, which I really like. Um, and it's just a meditative, prayerful way to interact with Scripture. You can do the morning one. You can do the evening one. You can do both. Um, download at your Apple Play Store. Oh, that's probably not. You, I just combined the two. Um, that's a great app. My last experiment um, is the prayer of imagination. So I have a few... Uh, major Jesus passages, like stories, and I can put this on Facebook too, but these are like great passages to take. You take one of these passages um, and find an easy to read or listen to a Bible translation. I often read out of the New Living Translation. You could do the message, which is a bit more um, plain speak. Even the International Children's Bible, I think, is a great option because it's just plain. You know, it's just like regular, okay, with simple words, okay? Anyways, so find a version, read the passage, one of these passages, first time, read it slowly, and imagine like you're in the story, but just as a bystander, okay? And you're just imagining the story, what it's like to kind of observe that story, that scene, okay? Then the, the second read through, you imagine yourself as a character in that story, okay? What's it like to be one of the characters in that story? The third read through, you imagine the story through Jesus's eyes. And after you've done those three different readings, you just, just Consider what the Holy Spirit is speaking to you about Jesus' character and how it reflects the Trinity from that story. Okay, what, do you, what, what stands out to me? And that is, that's it. Then you just thank God for meeting you in that moment. That's another way of interacting with Scripture. So try one of these experiments this week, um, and I'm going to ask Bridget to come on up as we enter into worship and see, see what, what you get from it, you know? Try a new way of interacting with Scripture um, than maybe what you're used to and what's comfortable. So um, let me pray as we enter into worship. Jesus, I just pray that you would meet with us now as we interact with you through, through singing and words and worship. I pray that you would just meet us in our hearts and in our bodies and in our minds, that you would bring us peace, that we, you would bring us into this constant flow of your love between the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit right now. We love you. At Life Community Church, 
We want you to experience the powerful, life-changing love of God. To learn more, go to lifemohammed.org. lifemohammed.org.